Welcome to the History of the Mongols, Episode 24, Crisis in the West. This week we reach the end of the era of Mongol power in Central Asia and Persia. Well, not truly the end, but certainly a point of significant transition. The picture of the western half of the Mongol Empire would never look the same after the 1350s. In the 1350s and the decades that followed, the three western Khanates, the Ilkhanate, Golden Horde and the Chagatai Khanate, all suffered profound crises of leadership, but would deal with those crises very differently. What was left, after the dust had settled, was no longer an empire of great Khanates, but a number of smaller and more unstable states. It was the final crucial transformation of the Mongol Empire. We'll start with the Ilkhanate, which experienced the first problems. The eminent Mongol historian David Morgan describes the collapse of the Ilkhanate as fall without decline. This is meant tongue-in-cheek, and we've already been through some of the issues facing the Ilkhanate in the 1320s and early 1330s, but it does convey the sheer suddenness of the events that unfolded. To recap, after the death of Ghazan Khan, the leadership of the Ilkhanate fell to Abu Sa'id. We sadly have very few contemporary accounts of his reign, so we have to piece things together. There were certainly external pressures on the Ilkhan lands, and they were forced to repel several major raids from the armies of the Golden Horde. And in the 1320s, Abu Sa'id joined the Yuan in a conflict against the Chagatai Khanate. Chagatid forces invaded the Ilkhanate before they were finally repelled. These incursions were a clear distraction that certainly prevented any further attempts to, for example, conquer the Mamluks in Egypt, but they weren't devastating. The major cities of Persia were left intact, and no major territories were lost. So we have to look elsewhere for the erosion of Mongol power. Erosion appears to be a good word, because the key element that is not well documented is the rise of new power sources, the Mongols had always been in a minority, and the weakening of their authority allowed the native Turkic tribes, as well as other branches of the Mongols, to achieve greater prominence. In 1335, Abu Sa'id died at the age of 30. He left no male heir. This need not have been a problem. In the past, the Mongols had proved quite able to pass power to another member of the male line, when there was no direct heir. This is one of the advantages of the flexible Hurultai. We've mentioned several of these situations. For example, after the death of Kublai Khan, the throne passed to a grandson. The fact that power was not passed smoothly on this occasion reflects the underlying problems facing the Ilkhans. At the time of his death, Abu Sa'id's wife was pregnant with a child who could have been a successor, but in the six months before the child was born, the state had already begun to disintegrate. Seeing their chance, the most powerful nobles made a bid for power themselves. Various families of emirs and local notables entered into alliances with each other, 
as well as with members of peripheral lines of the Ilkhanid royal family, in an attempt to enhance their prestige and legitimise their claims to authority. In particular, the military governors in the west of the Ilkhan lands, what is now western Iran and eastern Turkey, which contained the major cities of Baghdad, Mosul and Tabriz. To add to comp these complications, several candidates turned to the Mamluks, now the most powerful state in the region, for support. So who were the candidates for the throne? Well, there are three main groups we need to talk about. The first were the descendants of Chupan. You'll remember from two episodes ago that Chupan had been the effective leader of the Ilkhanate in the early years of Abu Sa'id's reign, before the Ilkhan had turned on his top general and had Chupan assassinated. However, Chupan's family remained immensely powerful and had strong links to the House of Huleg. Linked to the Chupanids, as this group are called, but not one of them, was Hassan Bereg. He was actually related to the Ilkhans through his mother, who was the sister of Ghazan Khan, and he was also connected to the Chupan faction by marriage. Finally, he became the chief commander of the Ilkhan armies after the fall of Chupan in 1337, a source of power in itself. His faction is known to history as the Jalarids, after the Mongol tribal grouping he belonged to. The third powerful faction was rather curious. In eastern Turkey, there was a large group of Oirat. Now, for those of you who have been listening since the very beginning, you may well remember the Oirat as one of the western steppe tribes conquered by Genghis in his initial formation of the great Mongol nation. Which, of course, leads on to the question, what are they doing 150 years later in eastern Turkey? Well, a large group had settled with Huleg's invasion, and in the late 13th century, many had left Syria to settle in Anatolia. Their leader, Ali Pasha, had his own claim to power. Abu Said's wife, still pregnant, sought refuge with the Oirat, so he had the possible heir to the throne in his hands. But the first move was not made by any of these three groups. Abu Said's old vizier actually got in first and installed a descendant of Huleg's brother, Arik Bork, called Arpa, as the new Khan. Ali Pasha and the Oirat were not going to accept this, and he enthroned another minor prince of the Borogin clan, Musa, as his puppet. The two sides actually came to battle near the Jagtu River in western Iran on May the 9th, 1336. The Oirat were outnumbered, but won a decisive victory. Arpa Khan and Abu Said's former vizier were both executed, and for a brief moment Ali Pasha seemed to be the prohibitive favourite to win the power struggle. He entered into an agreement with the Mamluk Sultan to guarantee their support, but only nine days after the battle, Dilshad Khatun gave birth to a girl, ending any hope that the crisis could be solved by the birth of a new male heir. Ali Pasha had probably intended to rule with Abu Said's son as his shield of legitimacy, but instead he had to keep Musa Khan 
as his puppet. His success was short-lived, because at this point the Jalarid fraction began to challenge. Hassan Berg joined forces with the sons of another powerful emir called Sutay, who had been governor of southern Iran. Sutay's sons opposed Ali Pasha on personal grounds, as after their father's death, Ali had been chosen over them as the new governor of the region. As was clearly the fashion, they enthroned their own puppet Khan, named Muhammad, at a ceremony in Tabriz, in opposition to Musa. Hassan made some diplomatic overtures to the Oirats, seeking a compromise, but they were not interested, and so both sides prepared for military conflict. These two coalitions met in a battle close to the Caspian Sea in modern-day eastern Iran on July the 24th, 1336, and this time it was the Oirats who were defeated, and Hassan and Muhammad Khan were then able to occupy Tabriz, the Ilkhan's old capital, and to control eastern Anatolia. The two sons of Sutay were given their father's old lands, and Hassan Baruch set about establishing his authority. He would not be any more successful at this than Ali Pasha, as almost immediately a new threat emerged from the east, now modern-day Afghanistan, in the shape of Togha Temur, a descendant of Genghis Khan's brother Kassar. He gathered the deposed Ilkhan, Musa Khan, to his side, and attacked Hassanburg in the spring of 1337. Although he was initially successful, when it came to open battle, Togha's forces were defeated and forced back to the east. However, Hassan could not enforce his authority over the east of the old Ilkhan lands. He sent a force with one of his generals, who he hoped would act as governor, but Togha defeated the expedition and executed the unfortunate soldier. As if one opponent was not enough for Hassan Burug, he had to face the Jubanids. Edit. As if one opponent was not enough for Hassan Burug, he had to face the Jubanids in the shape of one of Chupan's grandsons, also confusingly called Hassan. The Chupanids rallied to his side, including a number who defected from Hassan Berg. This new coalition was able to defeat Hassan Berg in a battle on July the 16th, 1338. They executed his puppet Muhammad Khan, and they occupied Tabriz. They also, though, did not take the lands that had previously been the western reaches of the Ilkhanate, and Hassan Barag was able to hang on to his power base. So to, st edit. So to take stock, there were three states, or centres of power if you prefer, Toga in the east, Hassan and the Chubanids in the area around the Caspian Sea, and Hassan Berg ruling in the west and Anatolia. This is essentially how things would remain, although it's worth recounting what happened the next year, as it tells you much about how unstable things were. Hassan Barug was extremely unhappy about the loss of his lands around Tabriz, and he offered Toga a deal. In exchange for Toga's support in war against the Chobanids, he would recognise Toga as Ilkhan. 
Hassan and the Chobanids realised that this twofold alliance could mean disaster. So he used his personal links to the sister of Abu Said and widow of Choban, Sati Beg, to accomplish a diplomatic coup. As one of the few remaining links to the house of Huleg, Sati was a powerful woman. Hassan offered Toga the hand of Sati in marriage and suggested the possibility of an alliance. Toga accepted this proposal, but Hassan wasn't done with his dealing yet. He sent their incriminating correspondence on to Hassan Barug, now offering an alliance to his western neighbour. Hassan Barug realised Toga's duplicity and withdrew his forces and switched his support to the Chobanids. Now it was Toga facing the prospect of two armies opposing him, and he withdrew east. Sati Beg was forced to marry a puppet ruler appointed by the Chobanids. Such was the lot of women, even noble women, in the 14th century. So in less than four years the Ilkhanate had splintered into three new major power bases, ruled by a mixture of Mongols, Turkic groups and other tribesmen. Although the Mongols would remain involved in governing the region, the Ilkhanate was dead. Turning our attention east to the Chagatay Khanate, which experienced many of the same problems as the Ilkhanate, the problems of finding suitable leadership. We left off there with the death of Tamarishin, the controversial Khan who was deposed in 1333 and later murdered by other Chagatid princes. This was probably due to clashes over his conversion to Islam, although we can't be sure of this. His reign certainly led to a weakening of the Khan's control over the eastern parts of their lands, which were dominated by the Mongol clans who opposed him. The other problem created by Tamarashin's fall was that he was the last of the sons of the old Khan Duwa to be Khan himself. Now power would pass to a younger generation. He also left no son as heir, so this left a large number of nephews, all with strong claims on the throne, to fight for power. The fairly predictable result was instability. The first incumbent, Buzan, was overthrown by his cousin, Changxi. Changxi ruled for three years and apparently tried to reverse the pro-Muslim trends that had been instigated by Tamari Xin, but he too was assassinated by other family members who wanted to see his brother Yesun on the throne. Yesun too could not maintain authority, and the end of his reign in 1342 marked a new low as the Chagatid branch of the family lost control of the throne to an obscure member of Ogaday's lineage. The last member of Ogaday's house to seize power had been the formidable Kaidu Khan, who dominated Central Asia for three decades. But Ali Sultan was no Kaidu. He and his obscure successor Muhammad lasted less than a year in total. This brings us to 1343 and the enthronement of Kazan, the last man who would rule the Chagatay Khanate as a unified territory. Kazan was a member of Chagatay's house, but his lineage meant nothing. Twenty years of instability and neglect had allowed new sources of authority to develop. 
most notably the Kuranas clan of the Mongols, under their leader, Kazagan. Ultimately, the weakness of the Khans meant that powerful warlords no longer felt the need to owe them allegiance. Kazan probably overestimated his position and aggressively tried to assert his own power, alienating many nobles who flocked to Kazagan's side. In 1345, the two went to war. Kazan defeated Kazagan in a battle north of the Iron Gates. Kazagan withdrew, defeated and also wounded, but rather than follow up his victory, Kazan apparently decided to spend the winter at his palace at Kashi, allowing Kazagan to rebuild his forces. The next year, when they faced off, the result was reversed, and it was Kazan who was defeated and killed during the battle. As Kazagan was wresting control from the last unified ruler of the Chagatay Khanate, the eastern territories, which had been increasingly independent for many years, finally drifted into complete separation. Another Mongol clan took the opportunity to enthrone their own puppet Khan, Tuluk Temur. Tuluk, who was a descendant of the Chagatay Khan Esenbuya, proved anything but a puppet, though. Many of his supporters were Buddhists and shamanists, but nevertheless he converted to Islam after a chance encounter with a cleric who unwittingly trespassed on Tuluk's hunting lands. This helped to further spread Islam in Central Asia. Tuluk was keen to assert his authority over the West and twice invaded Transoxiana. In the second invasion in 1361, he was able to defeat the most powerful emirs in the region, including the successors of Kazagan. He executed a number of nobles and left his son in charge as governor of the region. One of the beneficiaries of this was a young noble from the Turco-Mongol Balas clan called Timur, better known to us, of course, as Tamerlane the Great. His father was forced to flee from Tuluk's armies, and Timur took control of his father's lands. It was the first important step on his rapid rise to power, and by the end of the 14th century, his empire would cover most of Central Asia. The unified Khanate was very short-lived. Tuluk died soon after, in 1363, and his son was defeated and driven back to the east by a coalition led in part by Timur. Chagatay's lands were now split in two, with the eastern territory known to us as Mogulistan, Mogul being the Persian word for Mongol, and the overall authority of the Borogin family was gone. The experience in the Golden Horde, our final port of call, is rather different. We left the Horde with the death of the formidable Uzbeg Khan in 1342. His successor was his son Janibeg, who ruled for the next 15 years. We mentioned his role in the spread of the Black Death last week, but generally he was an effective leader, continuing his father's policy of asserting imperial power over Eastern Europe. The disastrous siege of Kaffa, which brought the Black Death to Europe, was one example, 
but he also campaigned against the Russian and Lithuanian principalities, and was not afraid to try and exploit the weaknesses of the other Khanates to expand his power. In 1356, he invaded the old lands of the Ilkhanate, now under the control of the Chubanids, deposed their leader, and conquered the port of Tabriz, former capital of the Ilkhanate, taking control over Azerbaijan, which had long been an ambition of the Khans of the Horde. Soon after this, though, Janibeg became ill and died. He recalled his son, Berdibeg, from his role as governor in Tabriz to succeed him as Khan, leading some to speculate that Berdibeg was actually responsible for poisoning his father. The withdrawal of the Horde forces allowed the Jailarids to retake the land, and as we'll see, the Horde was soon undergoing a crisis of its own so severe that the idea of any major offensive operations to retake Tabriz was completely out of the question. The problem was similar to that in Chagatai's holdings, a number of candidates for power all fighting to assert their authority. Janibeg had several sons, and they had no intention of playing nicely with each other. Berdibeg's reign lasted for two years before he was assassinated by his brother Kulpa, who was then deposed and murdered by another brother, Narwuz. This all occurred, of course, as the lands were still recovering from the debilitating effects of the Black Death. I'm not even going to attempt to list the Khans who followed Narwuz. At times, three or four men at once claimed sovereignty, but none of them was able to rule effectively. Any real power lay with men like Mamai, a military commander who acted as kingmaker for the Khans over two decades, placing puppets on the throne. The instability in the Golden Horde did not go unnoticed by the principalities of Eastern Europe, who eagerly moved to try and assert their independence from Mongol domination. In 1360, the resurgent Lithuanians wrested control of Kiev and the western Ukraine from the Mongols, ending more than 100 years as vassals of the Horde. The decisive Battle of the Blue Water which took place close to a tributary of the Bug River, is extremely poorly documented, but the Lithuanian troops were led by the renowned Grand Duke Algirdas, who ruled their lands for more than 30 years. Twenty years later, it was the turn of the Russian principalities to take on the Horde. They had been showing increasing unwillingness to continue to pay tribute, and in 1378, a horde force under Mirza Beg was sent to punish the Russians for their behaviour. In the past, such punitive expeditions had proved a successful way of maintaining control, but this time the Russians, led by Prince Dmitri Ivanovich of Moscow, defeated the Mongols in an engagement near the river Voiza. Two years later, on the 9th of September 1380, a far more significant battle between the two forces took place about 120 miles from Moscow. The Battle of Kulikovo was another decisive victory for Dmitri and the Russians, and earned him the nickname Dmitri of the Don, as the battlefield was close to the Don River. The Horde's armies, commanded by Mamai, were driven from the field. 
Mamai himself fled to the Crimea, where he was murdered soon after. The battle did not end Mongol dominance of Russia completely, but it did mark a fading of their influence, and a crucial step in the rise of Moscow. Eventually independence would follow, and from there the modern Russian state would continue to develop. Despite all these disasters, though, the Horde did not collapse in the 1370s and 1380s. In fact, the death of Mamai brought his rival Toktamish to power. Toktamish proved an extremely dynamic ruler, who was actually able to briefly reunite the Horde, and to conduct a successful punitive expedition against Moscow. In his time, he proved one of Tamerlane's toughest opponents. Despite his efforts, though, the Horde's power had been severely diminished during the 1350s and 1360s, and it was quite clear that there were new powers on the west and eastern borders that were... Edit. Despite his efforts, though, the Horde's power had been severely diminished during the 1350s and 1360s, and it was clear that new powers were emerging to west and east, capable of challenging them. So overall, what did the events of this period mean for the regions of Central Asia, Persia and Eastern Europe? If you look at a map of Europe and Western Asia from 1330, you'll see the three great Mongol monoliths dominating the eastern half of the map. The Golden Horde, the Ilkhanate and the Chagatai Khanate. A similar map from 1365 would show the lands of Persia and Central Asia splintered into a number of smaller, unstable states. And even this geographical illustration doesn't fully capture the chaotic nature of the political situation. This wasn't simply conflict amongst members of the Borogin clan, like the civil war a century earlier. This was a free-for-all, with tribes from different ethnicities and religions battling for supremacy as the authority of the Khans collapsed. Curiously, this doesn't mean that Mongol power over the region was completely lost. As I've explained, many of the groups who took power were ethnic Mongols from a number of different clans. What was gone, though, was the network of Khanates controlled by the descendants of Genghis. The empire, built by Genghis, had first begun to fracture when Kublai came to power in China. But the instability of the 1350s and 1360s ensured its demise. Members of Genghis's Borogin clan would still rule at times, but they would never dominate Eurasia again. Next time, we'll look at the end of the final stronghold of the Mongol Empire, Kublai's Yuan dynasty in China. Unlike the Western Khanates, they would be forced out of power, in large part by a popular rebellion. That will bring us to the 1368 date that normally marks the end of the Mongol Empire. It won't, though, be the end of the podcast, as I want to explore the legacy of Genghis Khan and the Mongols, and if I have time, to look at the remarkable career of Tamerlane the Great. I said next time because I'll be away for two weeks, so join me in the first week of July for the end of the Yuan Dynasty. <laughs>